When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So that's about to happen. Tuesday, November 4th, is Election Day. And we're going to get you ready for it by talking to HuffPost pollsters Mark Blumenthal. We'll talk about how the polling model looks for that marquee event of election night, who ends up in control of the Senate. He and I will also discuss whether and how the polls we've been paying attention to are wrong, maybe. We'll also discuss the science of exit polling. But first, let's find out why the results of next week's election may not actually be known by the time election night ends. I'm Jason Lincolns, ready to nerd out. So here's what happened first. Mark Blumenthal, HuffPostPolster, thank you for joining me. We want to talk about election night, which, depending on when people watch this, may be right. happening right be now. happening right or now or about, tomorrow. Or? Yeah. But the one thing that, that's interesting about this election night is that as far as the results we all care about, we don't know if election night is going to be the night that decides it, temporally speaking, right. that things can go on after election night that become decisive after right. the fact. So let's talk about that. What, why won't we know the results, say, of the Senate on, on election night? Right. Poss- we, potentially, potentially. When we say by things we care about, because we're sitting here in a studio inside the Beltway in Washington, right. we, of course, mean the Senate and nothing else. Yeah, exactly. That's on the ballot. So the Republicans, you know, the, the, the drama is whether the Republicans will get the six Senate seats that they need to take control of the Senate or whether they'll fall short. Right. Um, and the problem on knowing the answer to that on election night is that a, a lot of these are going to be up in the air. One is Louisiana, uh, a state, you know, currently held by a Democrat that Republicans are favored to win, but it's almost certain to go to a runoff. In Louisiana, a candidate can't win without having less than 50 percent of the vote. Um, Mary without Lane, having more than 50 percent. Without having more than 50 percent yeah. of the vote. And there is a third uh, uh, Republican in the race named uh, Manus, uh, mm-hmm. who's been getting 8 to 10 percent and will likely force a runoff election in early December. Um, that's, that's about 98 percent certain by our models. Um, so that's one where the, the ultimate result won't be known, although we'll know something about how the votes were cast. Uh, another one is potentially is Georgia, a seat currently held by a Republican, where the polling is similar situation. There, there's a runoff uh, rule, and, and the winner has to get 50 percent plus one. Um, Do they have a third candidate in the Georgia race? I know we talk about Michelle. It's not as certain. There's a libertarian candidate okay. who's been getting three to five percent in the polls. If that candidate's number is closer to five, it becomes more likely that there will be a runoff, and that one will be in early January. And just so, just to set some things here, who, who's currently ahead in these races as far as our models are, are concerned? Um, in Louisiana, Landrieu's leading on the, the, the primary election, right. which is held on Election Day. Um, but most polls have shown her behind Rob 
Rob Cassidy, the Republican, in a potential runoff. In Georgia, uh, the Republican, uh, David Perdue, had had an advantage on most polls, and then it's closed. And over the last week of the campaign, they've kind of gone in, in all directions. You can, you can pick a poll to find any, any result you want there. there right. Some have shown Perdue ahead, some yeah. have shown none ahead. Um, but that one is looking much more close. And beyond that, we also have Alaska. Yeah, the you, great wilderness of Alaska politics and bowling. A, a state that has been most polls have shown um, the Republican Sullivan uh, leading Democrat Mark Begich. Not all. Uh, Alaska is a state where polling is sort of notoriously weird. Um, although, as Nate Silver uh, pointed out, to the extent that it has aired in recent elections, it has tended to overstate the Democrat, not understate it. Mm-hmm. Um, but putting that aside, Alaska is also the polls don't close there until midnight. So we won't have any kind of return until, sadly, HuffPost Live is uh, midnight Eastern time, until uh, we are no longer live uh, and most of America has gone to sleep. Um, they also count slowly. There are a lot of these outlying areas and people that, where there are uh, provisional ballots cast. Uh, in 2012, it was something like only 73% of the vote had been counted by 6 a.m. Eastern time the next day. Uh, so in Alaska, particularly if that race ends up being close, which it well could, um, the internal polls, uh, uh, both sides have the race between even and four points in Sullivan's favor. That one could take days or even weeks uh, and, to be determined. Of course, and we, then, also, we also have a couple states where people cast right. votes by mail. Right. And I believe Colorado is one of those states. Yes. Colorado. So that's another place with a close election. Right. So there, there's Colorado and there are a couple of other states, Iowa potentially, uh, uh, that are very, very close, Kansas, um, where we just may not know the answer just because, you know, they get close to sort of recount range. I mean, they may be that close that the, the elections aren't called into the middle of the night. And then in Colorado, it's worse... Uh, for knowing the results because it's an all-male election this year. And I believe the, the uh, uh, law in Colorado allows you to cast your ballot as long as it's postmarked uh, on election day, you're still good, So, or perhaps the day before election day. Uh, so that means there will be ballots sitting in the mail arriving, being counted later in the week. It may be as many as 10, 20 percent of the ballots won't be counted uh, within, you know, on election night. That's, that's kind of insane. Right. Uh, I mean, do, will we be able to determine based upon the 80 percent that have been cast? If the race is, it depends. Uh, if it's as close as some of the polls suggest, probably not. Uh, that is that, you know, if there are 20, if there's a one point margin and there are 20% of the ballots outstanding, then no one is going to call the race uh, with that much vote uncounted. One last thing that is an unknown quantity right. in this election right now is in Kansas, Kansas. where you have uh, incumbent Senator Pat Roberts running against now independent Greg Orman. And what's uncertain about this is it's not just that the polling is, is close in this race and, and we, we, it's difficult to determine who has the advantage, but also Orman himself has kind of like thrown a monkey in everyone yeah. – a monkey, sorry – <laughs> A monkey wrench in everyone. A wrench in everyone's monkey. If he thrown a monkey yes. in everybody's house, that yes, would be one interesting election. He has thrown monkeys and wrenches <laughs> at people depending on who he thinks deserves a monkey, who he thinks deserves a wrench. At any rate, I'd he's, like to cover that. He, it would be great if elections were yeah. decided that way. I think. In, I think in Scotland, maybe they are. the um, the uh, The thing. The thing about Greg Orman is that now he said that he will caucus with whatever party wins, wins the majority. The majority. 
Right. So if Republican, if when all the votes are counted, be it a day or week or whenever after this thing is done, and the Republicans have 52 seats, as, as our models are sort of suggesting they will, then right. Orman's vote, if he wins, would just give them another seat, assuming he keeps his word. Assuming um, the, he keeps his word. The interesting scenario is what if... Uh, what if Democrats uh, hold on uh, in the places where they're ahead and, and defy the odds and perhaps and win Colorado and Iowa? And uh, I believe that takes us to uh, 49 seats for the Democrats and 50 for the Republicans, which means that Joe Biden would lead to a 50-50 tie. Um, in that situation, Greg Gorman has not said what he would do. He said if it were essentially a tie, right. he would look at whichever party is but, best for his state. And now, so he's held it out. If we hold his promise to the letter of the law, however, right. this is where we're going to get into our conflict. If we, hold, <laughs> if we hold Orman's promise to the letter of the law, in that scenario, you have 50 Republicans and 49 Democrats. Clearly, to keep his promise, he has to caucus with the Republicans, correct? I would think. I, I, you know what's because sort of we, absurd I mean, about this? Because, because, is that, because Joe Biden's the quantum vote in the Senate. I, you know, if you define majority as not including the vice president, yeah, you'd be right. What's really great about this is that in this year when everyone's doing uh, statistical models and trying to predict probabilities out to the nth degree, yeah. um, we're talking about getting inside the head of one candidate for Senate and deciding what the word majority means to him. And, and, he's, and, and a candidate whose moves you really can't predict beyond what he's promised to do because he's not a traditional candidate. Right. Uh, so, so that, I mean, that could conceivably, I mean, there is this sort of uh, crazy scenario in which what if Louisiana and Georgia go to runoffs and Greg Orman wins Kansas uh, and the Democrats hang on in Iowa and Colorado. You could have the situation where the, the majority is completely unknown and not one of those states is in a position to, to determine it decisively. Uh, we, that's yeah. the nightmare scenario for journalists <coughs> and, everywhere, and I think. And I've heard as far as the nightmare scenario goes, it could be perhaps end of this year that we actually know for sure who's holding the Senate. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's quite possible. I mean, it's it's not. I, I'm not sure that it's likely, um, but you know, it could be that the majority comes down to who wins the Louisiana runoff right. or the Georgia runoff, or potentially both. Things, of course, could go so well for the GOP on election night that these yes. things that are left as balls in the air May will just matter. be whether they add you know gravy to their uh, to their. Right. Potatoes. I think we we're going to say like, what what would you know on election night? Well. Uh, the polls in uh, Kentucky will close at 7, a, a race that's expected to go for Mitch McConnell, uh, in, in North Carolina at 7.30, in New Hampshire at 8. If either of those states uh, is called for the Republican uh, during prime time— about North Carolina or New Hampshire. North Carolina or New Hampshire— uh, if either of those states is going Republican or even is kind of close, it augurs very poorly for Democrats. And it suggests right. that Republicans may end up having that majority uh, uh, solid enough that, New, that Louisiana and or Georgia just sort of pass Sure. I mean, if we're, if, we're, Kansas. if we're talking about Scott Brown and Tom Tillis winning right. their Senate races, we're talking about a potential for, you know, almost a 55-seat majority for the GOP yes. um, when this is all yes. over. But if certainly if they win, then the route is probably It's off. a sign that, that uh, if, you know, the polls are missing the other way and, and, uh, and that the Republicans may just roll through the other states. All right. So if you're watching at home, watch those two races carefully. Uh, and, if, and if Scott Brown, Tom Tillis win, you can probably go to bed at midnight. <laughs>
Probably so. <laughs> you probably should go I to bed. You should go to bed anyway. anyway. Yeah. All right. And we're agreed on that. Go to bed. That's how. That's, that's how we're leaving it. Go to bed. about the races themselves um right now things look pretty good for the gop i think the way to think about it particularly if if you know you're not one of us who's been obsessing about this for for months is to know that uh democrats currently have a 55 seat majority in the senate in order for republicans to control the senate they need to pick up six because they need to break the tie that would result that that joe biden would break uh in the democrats favor and so generally need, speaking we're talking we've talked about how there are sort of nine battleground yes. Senate contests. Right. So there are at least two, maybe three uh, seats currently held by Democrats that are really not in that battleground. Uh, Montana, West Virginia, and possibly South Dakota, depending on, on how you see it, where the Republicans have led by very significant margins all the way through, and our, our HuffPost pollster model gives them sort of overwhelming uh, chances to win. So South- we take those three off the table, and now we're left with So now Republicans need... Three more seats three. to get a majority. There are currently three uh, contests in Arkansas, Alaska, and uh, Louisiana, uh, uh, states where Democrats are currently uh, are the sitting senators, um, where polling shows the race leaning to the Republican by three to five percentage points in our in our uh, poll tracking model. And usually, in the last week of the the race, the the probability of losing when you're three to five points. Um, uh, down is long. It's not impossible. Um, you know, it, it could happen given given our, our you know our certainty on those is still around the 60, 70 percent range. There, you know, there's a probability possibility that we could have a polling meltdown there, um, but they're they're long shots. Um, and then there are two more seats, uh, Iowa and Colorado, where the the margins are. Uh, where Republicans have generally led, not not consistently, and our election model is forecasting a one to two point uh, advantage for them. So these um, are essentially dead heats at this point. Very close to that. I mean, I'd say probably leaning, right? Um, just based on past history. Um, and and so if Republicans got all of those, they would have you know uh, the majority and two to spare. Um, the reason why it remains. Uh, an interesting and, and not locked up contest is that there are two more uh, seats, uh, one in Georgia and one in Kansas, currently held by Republicans, um, that are very close for, for different reasons, and we can we can talk about each of those. Well, let's talk about uh, let, let's talk about let's do that. Let's talk about Georgia and Kansas. Um, in, in Georgia, we should, we think of Georgia's traditional red state, right? Um, but the Democrats are running Michelle Nunn, daughter of uh, you know significant political figure in the Georgia right. Democratic Movement, Sam Nunn, uh, and there seems to be talk of a of a gradually changing electorate in Georgia, one that may. Uh, eventually turn into something that Democrats can exploit. Can you talk about or, that? Or it may be happening right now. It might now. be happening right now. Uh, Georgia is sort of a state not unlike North Carolina, not unlike Virginia, where although it's, been, you know, it's a southern state and had long been a red state, still arguably is, um, the urban center in Georgia has been growing very rapidly. Um, and the non-white population of Georgia has been growing right along with it as a, as a, as a share. There have been a fair number of you know, immigration and just the, the growth of the younger urban population and suburban population has made for a, an environment more favorable to Democrats. And it's been sort of the, the one pick among the, the, you know, the data geeks like me that cover these things 
as the state sort of most likely to be the next purple state. Now the question is whether, A, that's happening fast enough, and B, whether Michelle Nunn and the Democrats can turn out uh, those Atlanta uh, voters, those sort of drop-off voters who usually only vote in presidential elections, um, at, a, at a high enough rate to close this race down. Um, Nunn has had an assist, in a sense, from her opponent, um, who said some things about how proud he is of having outsourced jobs as a, right, as a businessman yeah. that the Nunn campaign's exploited. And so polling over the last few weeks has shown that uh, very close. The, the, the difficulty, I think, for Nunn is the fact that the winner has to get 50% plus one, has to win an absolute majority in order to win, or there's a runoff. Um, there's a libertarian candidate in the race um, who looks and sounds uh, as much like a Tea Party candidate as a libertarian. And uh, it's not clear what happens to her vote uh, if this race goes to a runoff. Um, one conventional wisdom is that that would hurt none, that none's best chance is to right. win an election night. But it's, you know, the polling now is very close and a little bit all over the place. My understanding uh, is that none is a bit closer to hitting that 50% mark than, say, Mary Landrieu is in Louisiana. She, she absolutely is, because in Louisiana, the, the third party the, the, is a primary, and there are multiple candidates um, that will almost certainly force a runoff. Now let's talk about Kansas. We've talked, uh, this is where uh, Pat Roberts. Uh, is running against Greg Orman. Uh, this is, again, uh, I mean, one of the quintessential red states. This is right. what's the matter with Kansas, Kansas. Right. Right. What's going wrong for Pat Roberts in, in Kansas that he's, that he's drawn this kind of, uh, you know, very active and dynamic opponent? Well, the, uh, the, the one thing in, in, in Kansas is um, that the political environment there has had as much to do with the incumbent governor uh, of Kansas, the Republican uh, who uh, Brownback? Yeah, Sam Brownback. Um, who's very unpopular and whose measures pushed through the state legislature there have sort of dominated politics, and that's been a a, a bit of a drag on. Um, Roberts. Roberts also had a very competitive primary as kind of a creature of Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. nearly lost the thing. Um, and, and then the Democratic candidate dropped out um, uh, back in September, right. giving this independent businessman sort of a shot to say that he's not a Democrat, that he's an independent who might caucus with either party. Right. And that's what's making this race competitive. The polling there, um, a little more sparse than in other states. It's been... Uh, you know, essentially even our, our, the HuffPolster model gives Roberts an advantage of a point or two, although that, that doesn't mean a whole lot a week before an election. Um, could conceivably go either way. I think the, the uh, Kansas is a place with a great big undecided, not surprising given the nature of this race. Nobody really knows. This is not, uh, this is not a race with a whole lot of historical precedent. Um, but I, the, the sort of conventional wisdom about it is that the bigger the undecided, um, the more potential there is for Roberts, just because it's, it's such an overwhelmingly Republican state that those undecided voters are, are probably more Republican than Democratic, too. Right. And I think if, you get, if, if, if voters catch wind of the fact that the stakes have become, this determines the majority of the Senate, Republicans that right. maybe thought they were going to back Orman may pull back and go with what they know. Right. That may be. And, and by the same token, you know, every national survey that's looked at it has found just overwhelming unhappiness with both parties right. everywhere, including Kansas. And so this might be the year that an independent uh, has a hidden through. vote that, that's, that we're not seeing in polls. So I, that, that is a race that, you know, is one of the most interesting to, to watch play out. The, finally, to me, this contest probably boils down to what happens 
in Iowa and Colorado. These are two interesting states. Uh, Braley, uh, way back when, had the whiff of inevitability about him. This is back when we thought maybe uh, some guy like Representative King might get into the race. Uh, And and in Colorado, uh, you know, Mark Udall has been uh, been following in the path of so many other Democrats and their unique get-out-the-vote effort. But it seems to me that the democratic efforts that that were tried and true have been well matched, if not maybe potentially exceeded right. by the efforts in those states by those candidates. Well, we're going to find out. Um, the, 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 let's talk about two things about those states that's different than all the others we've been discussing. Those are These are both states that were won narrowly by the Obama campaign. They were right. both states where the Democrats have put huge resources in 2012 and 2008 in turning out their vote there. Um, and it's where, you know, we're in a midterm election where Democrats know they can't count on um, the kind Their of turnout vote, yeah. uh, because there are, you know, this is the, the real dilemma that Democrats have everywhere, that voters who tend to vote only in presidential elections are their base. They're younger, they're less white, they're, they're more urban. Um, and so they have invested uh, $60 million nationally. I'm not quite sure how much of that in those two states, but a pretty fair amount in a massive attempt to try to get just enough of those drop-up voters out. Um, and they argue privately that they think the polling may understate um, their success because these are voters who are not necessarily going to express enthusiasm about voting or great interest in voting, um, but they may be turning them out anyway. And in Colorado, they're assisted by the fact that they have a, uh, uh, a mandatory for the first year, everyone will vote by mail, everyone receives a ballot in the mail. Um, academic studies have shown that that typically boosts turnout uh, and may well boost it in particular among the very drop-off voters that Democrats want to turn out. And so it makes it, I think that's the most interesting state and the one where the polls may be off in ways that mislead us about who's ahead. Um, and so that, that's really the key. And I think where we might conclude this is sort of turning this discussion around and think about what do Democrats need uh, to hold their majority? Right. Well, they absolutely have to hold um, North Carolina and New Hampshire, where they have incumbents who are leading by the thinnest of margins. Some polls actually have had Kay Hagan tied with Tom Tillis this week, and there have been a handful in uh, New Hampshire as well. They have to hold those states. Um, I think realistically, their, their path goes through both Iowa and Colorado. They have to you know, uh, win both of those states. If they can do that... They still need to pick up one of Georgia, Kansas, uh, if they can talk Greg Orman into caucusing with them, possibly uh, an Arkansas or an Alaska. So that's why the models and and all the prognosticators are saying the Republicans are in good shape because, you know, what Democrats need to do is they essentially need to to run the table of every close race where they seem to have a shot. Mm -hmm. Um, Not impossible at all. You know, it is conceivable Uh, but it is, uh, you know, more probable than not at this point that they'll fall short. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mark Blumenthal, we have sort of come to expect over the past few election cycles uh, to believe in Bayesian models of probability. Probabilistic. Probabilistic. Right. Uh, And perhaps we make the mistake of treating probabilistic models as augury. So I'm going to ask you, as someone who both does modeling and also sort of watches the Watchmen a little bit on this, the silvers, the wangs, the silver wangs. <laughs> where, uh, where are the, the people the, in the your industry? Silvers, the bloomin' wangs. The bloomin' wangs. Yeah, yeah. Where, where could you all be wrong? Well, uh, let's just before we even get to why the poles that drive these things can be wrong. Right. Uh, when the model says that something is sixty percent probable to happen, or sixty point something percent probable to happen. What that means is that there's a 40% probability that it will be wrong. And 40% is a pretty good chance something will be wrong. And something is a pretty good chance of being wrong. I've struggled to find the best sort of metaphor for this. But if I said, you know, I got an arrow, here's an apple, go stand against that wall, I'm going to shoot my arrow, and there's only a 40% chance that I'm going to hit you with it, Right. You're not standing under that apple. Right. Well, here's another but people way. people of- here, there's a 60% chance that Republicans are going to win the Senate, and they assume, well, that this is alchemy and there's no right. chance. Here's right. a way we've talked about it before, actually, is that say today, before we sat down at this table, our producers handed each of us a quarter, and without us knowing, one quarter right. by magic was going to come down heads six times out of ten. Right. And, and one quarter was going to come down four times out of ten. And we started flipping coins and keeping track. It would be hours of flipping it would be, before we realized who got, who got the bad coin. Thanks to Josh Katz at the New York Times, we can say that it would be about a half an hour. So it would take us 30 minutes yeah. of just flipping coins yes. to determine, oh, I got the screwed 60 one. Ver- you or 55, got the good one. 55 versus 50 would take mm-hmm. about a half an hour. 60 right. might cut a little time off of that. But. Right. So when we're talking about 60% chance, that's great for whoever right. is ending up with 60%, but it's not like, woo, God, it's locked down. Right. So, so let's, let's take that into the idea of like Ken, I mean, can Ken I just, Paul's. Can yes, I, yes back, of course. Back in, back in 2012... When, when you know, models like Silver's were showing, what, at the end, 92% chance Obama wins right. this election, you know, I would tell people, it's like, there's still an 8% chance Romney wins it. And, like, literally, of all the people in America that could be president, Romney has the second best chance of being that yeah, president. That's, that's He's got a right. better chance than most people, except right. for one guy. Right. And, and the, the 10% chance um, rested on the idea that polling might be off. Uh, that those last estimates might miss right. in one direction or another. And in fact, they did. Yeah. They tended to understate Obama's margin. Um, if that understatement occurs again in places where it happened, like Iowa and Colorado, if the polling averages are that close, it could be by enough 
to make to, to make the the forty percent scenario play out. All right, what do we mean? Right? What so, do we mean specifically when we say the polling models understate? Okay, so so let's take a second and walk through you know what what I do, which is thinking about polls, which is the the, the raw ingredients of these models, and and when are they? And I'm gonna you know, air quotes wrong. Right. And let's define what we mean by wrong because you know polling by its very nature is very is variable. So, you know, there are races like Alaska where you can see polls showing everywhere between the Republican ahead by seven or eight or down by nine and everything in between. Well, some of those are clearly off as, as right. forecasts of the election. There are also snapshots and there's room for change. What I, we're thinking about here is what happens when you take all the polls and you aggregate them into some kind of average or model. How often is that model going to be an incorrect uh, forecast of the winner, uh, particularly in the last week? So some, so one category of why they could be wrong is just the randomness. Um, you know, we, we can take a lot of the randomness out by putting them together, but not all of it. Right. Um, and there's randomness in how we build our models and, and all the rest. So what we found historically, by which I mean the last 10 years or so, um, not a long time, uh, polling averages that have one candidate ahead by a point or less get pretty close to a coin flip. That is... It's a, it's a lead. It might be a little, it might be that 55% right. scenario, but not much better. If you get in the range of two to three points, now we're talking two thirds, maybe 70%. Um, but a real chance of them failing, you get five points or more, and, and we're approaching uh, true certainty. So that's one category, just pure random. Uh, you know, clearly, if a, if a race is closer, there's a chance that our polling estimate's going to be off by a little okay. bit. Um, second is just the idea that, that there's some momentum, that there's a trend, right? That it's a snapshot and something happens between the last poll on Wednesday or Thursday or Monday or Tuesday, an election. Maybe the undecideds look different. Maybe people supporting a third candidate change their mind. Maybe, maybe something happens late. Um, what is the chance that there can be a systematic problem? That would mean that Democrats who seem to be behind uh, or, or, you know, they could, they could help either party. I think in, to the extent that there's any, uh, that there's a, a theory with any evidence here, there were a handful of states, uh, I forget, Nevada, uh, Nevada, a state that isn't even holding a race this year, uh, uh, Arkansas, uh, Alaska, uh, Iowa, a handful where it looked as if in September there was kind of a consistent move in the direction of the Republicans uh, in our model and a bunch of the others. And there's sort of an argument that says maybe what's happening here is that the national environment, uh, Obama's job approval rating in some of these states, the red states, is sort of capping the Democrats' ability to grow their support. And that as voters get more, as the middle voters, the undecided voters get more engaged in the race, um, they're migrating to the Republicans just enough more uh, to sort of move their numbers up. An interesting theory, and it may still play out. I mean, there are Republicans I talk to who feel that they have a real good chance of pulling off an upset in North Carolina for that reason, that there may be, uh, that the libertarian candidates' support on the polls may be too high, and that they may see a sort of a last-minute uh, move uh, in Tom Tillis's direction in North Carolina. It's an interesting theory. The momentum, you know, the, the, the trends that we were seeing just in those states uh, in September sort of plateaued over most of October. And Nate Silver went and looked at this in a sort of more comprehensive way. And he said, you know, if you look at two-week periods, you don't see any kind of consistent momentum for anybody. Um, so that's, that's a second category. Is there a possibility of a shift? I would just say, you know, look at races with bigger undecideds. Um, one of them is Kansas. One of them is 
possibly North Carolina, where bigger undecideds or, or a larger number of people saying that they'd vote for a third-party candidate. Those are places where there's more potential for people to change their minds or move around. And then the, the third category, and I, I should stop, and you're the, you're the moderator. You should, you should no, ask tell me the question. third category. Uh, third category is just where, do, where are polls, where is there a chance they're just measuring it wrong? Um, that they're just understating the percentage who are supporting the Democrat or the Republican. And uh, the, the, Nate Cohn had a, a nice piece in the New York Times uh, Thursday before the election, today as we, as we uh, record this, um, looking at the reasons that polls may be understating Democrats. And there are some pretty good arguments why that may be happening in some places. I'd say Colorado would be one in particular to watch. Um, all of the problems affecting polling, cell phone-only households, the mm-hmm. declining response rates, um, uh, the um, uh, problems matching uh, voters of voter file names, and all, all of the other challenges that polling have are all sort of about making it harder for Democrats to get interviewed than Republicans, um, and including the, the modeling of, of uh, likely voters, that, that there's an argument that uh, the Democratic turnout efforts are going to turn out people to vote yeah, who, that was a question. who won't likely say, I'm likely to vote or I'm interested in the election or I know where my polling place is, but they're going to turn them out anyway. Yeah, I and have to if ask. you stack these up, that's why in Iowa and Colorado and um, Wisconsin and a number of other states in 2012, polling understated Obama's margin. Right. Why polling missed in Colorado in 2010 and had, uh, um, I'm forgetting the name of Colorado's other, Bennett, uh, Senator yeah, Bennett, Bennett. Uh, was behind in the polling and ultimately won. Yeah, and, I have to ask, so imagine I'm that guy from a campaign, maybe this year I'm someone who works for Udall, and I come to you, and I come to you guys, oh, you pollsters, you poll modelers, you, you never take into consideration, you know, our, our ground game, our get-up-to-vote effort. You're undercounting our support. We've got this. Uh, am I ever right? Am I ever right? And you might be or in Colorado just, this year. In, in that state is one I'm just because some I find of, sometimes I think I think oh maybe they have a point, but also maybe it's got you know three weeks before election they can't just go out there and publicly give up on it. They have right. To, like Stoke Hope. Well, I mean, look in, in Nevada in 2010, uh, the pollster for Harry Reid. Uh, Name him. Mark Melman right. did his polling in a way that uh, allowed for a broader uh, screen of voting and, and yeah. had a, I mean, without getting into all the gory details, um, is what I, I would argue is a better way of trying to sample uh, likely voters than asking them questions about uh, that, what, what, the, what Melman and to a larger degree the other Democrats and to some extent Republican pollsters have learned to do is to use the actual history of how people have voted in the past on a voter file and use that for their sample and use that to figure out what the likely electorate looks like. Less so, are you likely to vote? Are you interested in the election? Right. Um, and so Melman, let's take the, advantage, the example in, in Nevada, um, had polling over the final week that had Harry Reid ahead while public polling had him behind. Um, didn't release it publicly at the time, told some of us about it privately, and, and, you know, we took notice. And there have been examples like this. The Obama campaign in 2012 did not understate their support. They had it nailed internally. Um, the uh, 
you know, other Democratic campaigns in other places have done this. So there is a way. And in, they've released results in Colorado. Now, they've probably cherry-picked results uh, from their massive programs that look a little better. But there have been three or four polls released uh, by Democrats, including Melman, um, including Joel Benenson, who polls for Obama, including Paul Harstad, who uh, I believe polls for the Udall campaign, or perhaps it's DSCC, all of which have had Udall a point ahead, a couple of points ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, they probably have had other polls this month, this month that have had them even or maybe a little behind. Um, and so that's the dilemma in trying to anticipate, you know, whether there's going to be a polling error in Colorado big enough to, to mislead us about this. Because the question is, so maybe there is, so maybe they do understate uh, Udall by a point or two, but he's three or four down. And, and so we wake up and we say, well, polls were off, but uh, you know, Gardner still won the race. Right. So you might be wrong, but you're probably not. Well, you know, that's why you got to stay up and watch. All right. Because uh, I think the odds are very good that at least one of the Senate forecasts, you know, on our models, and probably two, or you know, there, there are going to be a couple where we have the loser behind. The All question right. is: Is it going to be Iowa and Colorado, or is it going to be New Hampshire and uh, North Carolina, or some mix of the two? That and that can augur very badly for Democrats if you're off on New Hampshire, and North Carolina. Well, I, I think uh, you know the de- the definition of wave is partly to what extent are expectations upset, uh, but partly can one party sort of sweep all the close races? Uh, if if Democrats lose both North Carolina and New Hampshire, they're they're likely on their way to losing all of the close races. All so. right, so watch for that. Exit polls. Uh, famously, I think America got its first taste of, of how badly you could be burned by exit polls during the Kerry Bush election when they got released really early. Leaked. Drudged. Leaked. leaked well, technically. Let's, let's call it leaked. Right. Drudge bannered. A lot of people went home from work thinking, ah, well, just we know the ending to this. Did not know the ending. Right. Uh, so tell, tell us about exit polls, it's why a, they're problematic. You know, why the, they're the interesting thing is those of us who, who you know, worked in Washington, either on campaigns or for the media, knew for all through the late 80s and 90s, uh, exit polls leaked all the time. Right. It used to be that uh, these surveys done at polling places would be tabulated during the day by the networks, and initial runs of them would be shared with television producers and the subscribing newspapers. Who, be, These folks, being reporters, would run to their sources with information to trade, even though they weren't supposed to. Right. And it would take minutes for you know, those of us who weren't in media to get a call from somebody who would have the new numbers. Right. And it was almost, it was sort of what you did on election day, was you would trade these numbers. And I remember sitting down with a spreadsheet in 1992 and taking the numbers that came in, and that noon count had Bill Clinton winning the biggest majority of the electoral vote that any Democrat had won since, I don't know, uh, Roosevelt's second term or something, or first term, or whichever one was the blowout. Um, And then watching on election night as that didn't quite 
happen. And we all, those of us who paid close attention sort of learned that uh, it did seem that they often overstated Democrats a little. Well, this happened in 2004, except with the internet watching. Yeah. Now it leaked on Drudge and on Wonkett and on, you know, Daily Coast. And, yeah, uh, Daily Coast by 5 o'clock had been sort of like they started the champagne and caviar. Right. And they were Big off. Mistake. And those initial election things were off, uh, 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 tallies were off in four states by just enough. Yeah, didn't take much. Uh, to push, you know, a, a one or two point, you know, people were looking, were doing what they should never do with any poll, much less an exit poll, as they saw, well, up one, up two, up three, up, up, you know, and saying win, 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 when at best it was within the random error and there was a systematic issue that the national poll that year, anyway... After that happened, and after that, it became clear that the internet made it impossible for this cozy little yeah. leak game that we played in Washington to, uh, to, to continue. Um, the entity that runs the exit polls is called the National Election Pool, and it's a conglomerate of the five television networks and the Associated Press, uh, agreed that they would keep everything locked up in a quarantine room. Seriously. Right. Pre-Ebola. Not, uh, <laughs> they would quarantine this, and so they are now religiously. Everybody goes into that as part of it. They, give, they surrender their cell phones, and they, right. they uh, communicate with no one in the outside world until 5 o'clock. It's like a papal conclave, basically. Somewhat. Black smoke, and only then. Uh, and then at 5 o'clock now, the numbers are released to the select, uh, mostly television producers, who can view them on their screens, and they begin to prepare for their stories. They still do leak, um, but uh, I think fortunately, those of us in the news media, and I think Twitter's actually been helpful in this regard, have been there to remind everyone that they don't mean anything, really. Yeah. Um, and one of the things, you know, I, this was one of my inaugural blogging experiences 10 years ago. Um, the thing to keep in mind, if you do find leaked results at 6 or 6.30 and you see them, if something says plus one or plus two or plus three, one thing you're going to see almost immediately is that those numbers are going to look just like the polling averages we were looking at an hour before, and that's not a coincidence. Um, one of the things that the exit pollsters do to try to keep those early numbers sort of in sync with reality is they kind of average what they collect at the polling places with pre-election polls. Um, sometimes pretty, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty heavy-handed about it. Um, there is a process on election night. The, the, the next thing that happens is when the polls close in any given state, most of the networks put up the, they call them the tabulations. These are the results with all, all the results from the exit poll, all the questions asked, and then the tabulation of whether the Democrat or Republican, what percentage of the vote they got from each subgroup, men, women, age, race. Yeah, it seems to me that now, rather than using these exit polls as like, Determinative victories. They're using them more to like dig down to the cross tabs and that's to what, find out something about the way people voted. That's what they're actually there for. Right. I mean, they're a small part of the very large, sophisticated sort of thing that they do to try to call a result, and that's a blend of those interviews and actual vote counts at randomly selected precincts, and then ultimately the whole thing. Um, but yeah, they're really there to help us understand who voted and why they voted. Um, but those tabs go up right as the election, as the polls close, and smart Alex, like you know me, can go and figure out that if 52% are female and 48% are male, and I know the results among those groups, I can put those numbers into a, into a spreadsheet and figure out what their estimate is. And those are also sometimes off compared to what happens. Now, the, the interesting thing and the thing worth playing around with is usually about 
90 minutes or so after the polls close, maybe an hour, maybe two hours, um, they start improving the estimate that's used to weight that data because they're getting back live vote. You know, one of the things they do is they get the actual vote cast at the randomly sampled precincts um, where they do the interviews so they can figure out both to what extent is, are there, you know, are the exit poll results wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, and moreover, just what's a better estimate of the outcome of the election? And then they start, they'll apply that. And that's where a lot of races get called um, if the margins are big enough uh, and where we find out, boy, this is really too close to call if they're not. You know, I, I have to say, I've never been exit polled, so I don't know how it works. It, do, do, do pollsters just walk up to people when they're walking out of their, yep. their voting precincts? Yep. The way it works is that they have... Uh, they, they're usually young people. They're usually uh, they're, they're hired for the day, and they have clipboards, and their instruction is to intercept every fifth voter or every fourth voter or every eighth voter that comes by them. Mm-hmm. And they're supposed to record when somebody skips, whether that's a male or a female and their approximate age and things like that. So well, doesn't can... that exclude grouchy people? Like, I don't want to talk yes, to you. Yes, it does. Yeah. In fact, one of, the prob- one of the reasons that we've seen that sort of error um, is that it's, you know, the response rates for this, like anything else, are not super high. Yeah. And younger interviewers have a harder time winning cooperation from older, grumpier uh, voters. I, I infer grumpier, but, you know, <laughs> I, I think it's safe. Fair enough, fair uh, enough. Grouchy. Uh, and, and that can, you know, given the way demographics uh, are behind vote preference, that's something they then have to take into account when they, when they do the weighting and, and put out the numbers. And then, the, you know, there's one other thing, which is phones, uh, or phones, uh, early voting. Right. You can't stand outside of a polling place when you mail your ballot in. Right. Uh, and I don't believe anybody's <laughs> invested in, in intercept interviews at early voting locations, in part because it's hard to know where people are, you know, what precinct they're from. So to compensate for this, uh, the, the NEP does telephone surveys over, over the final weekend before the election. So the... You know, in Colorado, where the where it's all mailed this year, the exit poll isn't an exit poll; it's a telephone poll, yeah. uh, and that's something to keep in mind because you know we we go on and on about how telephone polls have problems. Well, that's as true for the telephone polling. Uh, the you know they spend a lot of money; they do a very high quality survey, but it's still a telephone survey. All right. Well, I guess uh, take it with a grain of salt. Always or salt lick. It's our favorite cliche. Yeah, get a lot of sodium, basically. Yes, sir. Thanks so much for listening to this week's edition of So That Happened. If there's a story you'd like to hear us cover, please feel free to email me at jason at huffingtonpost.com. Stay tuned the day after election night. Hopefully there will be a weird and sloppy and very tired edition of So That Happened coming to you special. In the meantime, we'll catch you later, and we miss you already. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.